Requiem Metal Podcast, episode 20, Anthrax. Gene Wilder podcast. <laughs> Gene Wilder being operated on. It's pretty crazy. Uh, welcome to Requiem Metal Podcast. Uh, I'm Mark Rudolph. And I'm Jason Hundy. And joining us again is special Grindcore guest. Mr. Jeff Kuhn. That's right. <laughs> Grindcore Kuhn. So you just heard a little intro, uh, hopefully recognizable to most of you uh, metal fans out there as being uh, a little excerpt from Madhouse from Anthrax. Because tonight, fellas... In the wee hours of the morning, we're uh, going to be looking at some of our kind of favorite picks from from Anthrax, really focusing on kind of the three essential albums, if you will, uh, which may upset some of the hardcore fans because... Uh, and this isn't a historical, you know, look at them by any means. This is just kind of our, you know, what, what we dig about the band. And this We've all kind of gone back in the last couple of years and, you know, reintroduced ourselves to these. Oh, absolutely. A couple of records here, so... I kind of... Uh, been talking to Mark about doing this for a little while. For for some reason, I got this itch to like go back and you know like download and find like all the old you know Anthrax records mm-hmm. and been kind of listening to those. And I finally rebought them and stuff. And I mean, this is stuff like I I seriously haven't listened to since it was like on cassette tape. You know, when we were back yeah. in like early high school. You know, Jeff and I and this other friend of ours or old friend of ours, Matt Gupel, like was, we're buying a lot of anthrax records and stuff on, on, on tape so yep. what's what's your memory kind of, of of those you know early listens well i mean you know the big album i got into i guess first with anthrax was uh would be sound of white noise and then kind of would backtrack from there you know which is and, an, you know, an interesting journey yeah because you know i guess my impression was you know that's a that album's kind of totally different than a lot of the than well, a lot of the hardcore fans kind of poo-poo the sound of white noise record just because of the lineup changes and yeah, you know, they, yeah. commercial indie kind of sound yeah they didn't exactly. really want to open themselves up to you know john bush you mm-hmm. know kind of being part of it which jeff and i kind of fell backwards the other way and it was almost a harder adjustment to get used to belladonna's vocals after hearing bush and even some of the scotty ian stuff well, now going back, and I mean, I was always a, a Belladonna fan for some weird reason, but going back and listening to Sound of White Noise for the, you know, basically the first time since it first came out, or, you know, saw some of those tracks on Headbangers Ball, like Bush is an infinitely better singer than Belladonna ever was. Yeah, and, and no no knock on Belladonna, because he's, uh, he's a, he's a kind of a classic vocalist, I, I, I guess. It took him a long time to really figure out who he was as a vocalist. Yeah, and we'll get into that when we talk about the kind of the later years uh, of Belladonna, one of the, the last Belladonna record we'll kind of look at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Anthrax... For the most part, uh, the early lineup was made up of Joey Belladonna on vocals and then the two guitar players. Uh, Dan Spitz was the, the lead guitarist and, of course, the infamous Scotty Ian, who you can see... If you've ever seen VH1, you've seen him. Yeah. <laughs> and his famous goatee and, and all that. Uh, and then Charlie Benante on drums and Frank Bello on bass. And, and that's pretty much more or less been the core lineup, uh, unless you want to go back pre-spreading the disease to the Danny Loker on bass and I I unfortunately can't remember the the original vocalist I want to say his name's Neil but 
I, I, I have Metal Thrashing Mad even on my iPod. And, different vocalists. So. Yeah, it, it was... I don't know. I tried listening to those songs and getting into them like, lately, and it just didn't, you know have that same impact so yeah but you know of of sort of the early records that anthrax did you know a lot of fans kind of have a endearing love of of spreading the disease but uh for right now we're going to kind of set that album aside and i was telling these guys i've always had a hard time getting past the cover on that record because it looks like gene wilder is being like drilled with like experimental government stuff or almost like a future version of young frankenstein exactly exactly (laughs) and that may have been what they're going for i mean uh it's it's a really typical kind of you know metal painting of that era too yeah yeah i mean even some of the metallica covers were you know not great and uh unless you know like megadeth kind of created an imagery around that kind of skeletal figure vic yeah yeah. you know and slayer had their you know war guy sort of they always had a more interesting aesthetic the the paintings are a little bit more off they weren't quite as like just literal as all these things were sure and and anthrax gets thrown in you know they're part of the the big four as they say of, of thrash you know metallica megadeth slayer and anthrax but Certainly, the one of the bigger differences besides geography, because uh, Anthrax hail from kind of the New York, Brooklyn area, is is certainly their unique kind of bouncy, almost like happy sense of humor type sound. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and everything's got that driving that dan yeah, dan, 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 dan. Almost the guitars following the drums consistently in unison. Just a straightforward, kind of almost like a pile driver sound. And then yeah. you get the breakdowns, like you know, you can see people hopping around in a pit. Mm-hmm. You know, basically to it, and we were kind of talking too that it's it's sort of the sound in a way that that like a band like Pantera picked up on in the '90s and and really kind of turned into a, a pretty popular sound. Yeah, you know, yeah, really. it was a lot harder to popularize sort of the complexity of like what Metallica and Megadeth were doing on some of their better records like Rust and Peace, and mm-hmm. where it was just really complex and progressive. But Anthrax almost had a more was, commercial sound in a way yeah and there's always a band that like a lot of like athletes and stuff i always noticed listen to that too and i had Thrax t-shirts i don't know if you know it, it seems like it's indicative of playing sports or working out or something it's kind of like muscle head to some degree yeah, it's like a just a headbanger band you know yeah yeah like people that like the mosh just love anthrax lift weights simple yeah, yeah. you know kind of simple I think the other thing that that we need to you know maybe talk about with Anthrax too is the sense of humor that they had. There was a real non-threatening part of Anthrax. They mm-hmm. weren't, you know, certainly you listen to Slayer and you knew you were kind of playing with fire a little bit, you know, especially are, yeah, more like a party band, like yeah. you want to have fun. Yeah, and you know, Megadeth was political and kind of darker, yeah. and Metallica was a little darker. Anthrax, I mean, they had their their songs here and there, but I, you know, you couldn't. It was hard to take them seriously most of the time. Yeah, and I don't think they really ever took themselves seriously. I mean, they had that kind of that hardcore meets thrash kind of bend to them, which I think out of any of the out of the big four, they had the biggest like hardcore influence out of any of them. Yeah, absolutely, it was. I mean, the merging of like New York hardcore. Yeah, mm-hmm. they could have been primarily based on geography. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. Plus, you know, the fact that those guys, too, you know, were, were, you know, when Scotty would write a lot of the riffs, he had to decide which band he was writing them for in those early years, if it was going to be an S.O.D. song or an Anthrax song, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and if certainly S.O.D.'s given a lot of credit for being one of the first kind of crossover thrash core bands or mm-hmm. metalcore, whatever you want to call it, whatever it was back then, 
I don't think, yeah, they, I don't think they knew what it was yeah, at the yeah. time, but, you know. They're just probably all playing shows together. <laughs> yeah, but SOD's for another time, maybe, maybe. someday in the near future. <laughs> I don't know if we could stomach enough SOD songs to get through it. But uh, the after spreading the disease, I think Anthrax came into their own in terms of competent, uh, really good musical songwriting with Among the Living, which is an album we're, we're really going to kind of focus on. Um, you know, a lot of fan pick this as the favorite certainly mm-hmm. of the belladonna era i'd say this or persistence of time you know yeah. get brought up probably the most two really different records but absolutely and and you know in terms of maturity i think when we get to persistence of time the songwriting gets a little bit more mature Focused, yeah. and it's not as much sense of humor kind of stuff going on uh but this is sort of littered with you know uh tons of different pop culture references and things like that that you wouldn't have seen on a Metallica record. You know I mean? Metallica's, they were their influences on their sleeve, like Iron Maiden. Yeah. You know, like you know, Brave New World. I mean, how many like Iron Maiden songs are based on some 60s sci-fi movie? Yeah. yeah, or, <laughs> Prisoner, you know, yeah. or historical things, Alexander the Great and Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I mean, yeah. just, just, you know, it was, it was very influenced by, you know, film and television and literature and things like that. Yeah, it wasn't about feelings and real life problems yeah yeah darkness and yeah social issues things like that you know i mean they they kind of sneak in you know with indians you know there's kind of a a social issue element to that i guess you know it's not veiled by anything that's completely like obvious yeah (laughs) yeah there's there's no metaphor there um but you know the thing about among the living is uh they kind of got their first big record contract i mean they were they were on island for spreading the disease but uh for what i remember reading the production of this with eddie kramer eddie kramer is kind of a famous guy who had worked with a lot a lot of bigger like rock and roll bands in the 60s 70s and stuff and i think they like flew down to florida or, or somewhere to mm-hmm. record this thing and they're you know you two and robert plant and robert palmer and people were like hanging around oh, and wow. stuff but uh you can tell it's a it's a huge leap forward from some of the the thin production that you hear on spreading the disease and and I feel like on spreading the disease they maybe didn't have like the amount of focus that they they mm-hmm. wanted you know there was a couple real duds on that uh, including my my favorite dud of all time from Anthrax probably Medusa which sounds like Lover Boy turn me loose <laughs> the vocal line uh, but there's some good songs on on, on spreading the disease there, so. what's that yeah Gung Ho which which may pop up a little bit later but in terms of Among the Living you know you're talking about uh, comic book references with Judge Dredd you know I am the law you're talking two Stephen King references with Among the Living and a skeleton in the closet and then they're dissing on kind of the John Belushi you know lifestyle with with NFL uh, which will let you figure out what NFL is yeah. all about so even you know that's got uh, caught in a mosh which is probably one of their most you know famous if, songs. if if not the the most essential anthrax song you know it's the predated toxic waltz you know by a couple yeah. of years so you know the it's, inter- their, it's their come on feel the noise yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the encore song caught in a mosh here we go but Among the Living in particular is kind of an interesting song lyrically because it's about the stand from Stephen King uh, and Skeleton in the Closet's about at pupil, you know. So there they're dealing with a little bit more serious issues, you know, like the good versus evil. Mm-hmm. But still there's like a comic booky sense of humor kind of feel to the whole thing. Like, you know, I just can't take it seriously. But yeah, they don't have consistent themes running through the records like a lot of people did back then. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, but... uh Let's get into some music because this is, you know, what it's all about. We wanted to kind of talk about the, these three albums that we really enjoy, and so we're going to hear 
four songs from Among the Living, but in this first set we're just going to hear three, uh, and then we'll come back and, and talk a little bit about it. But we're going to hear NFL, which is uh, probably my personal favorite off the record. Um, I don't, do you guys have a personal favorite from Among the Living in oh. particular? Mine is sadly Indians. Indians, okay. It's it, I haven't li- listened to the album much either. That's the problem. So yeah, it's, it's kind of speculation. Among the living, or yeah, I can deal. I can deal with Indians. Okay, there you <laughs> go. It's a catchy song. It is. It's a catchy cry, song. Cry. And, and we'll talk about. Hopefully, maybe you'll notice some uh, some of the beginnings of Indians. Sounds like another band you may have heard of before. But uh, we're gonna hear NFL and a skeleton in the closet and Indians.
That was Indians that you just heard there. Skeleton in the Closet before that, and we started off with NFL. Um, nice bleeping life. Yeah, nice uh, <laughs> nice bleeping life, John Belushi. That that song, lyrically, feels almost more like S.O.D. Yeah, it does. You know, but a more mature version of what S.O.D. would like to do when they do like their ballads to Kurt Cobain and uh, <laughs> uh, Jimi Hendrix and stuff. You know, but... I mean, there's a there's a message in there, you know, which is kind of cool. Just don't waste your life if you got some talent. But I feel like that song could be written about Chris Farley or any Saturday Night Live comedian that's dead now. You know? yeah. <laughs> so but uh, kind of some interesting things in the layout. It's you got the the famous subway picture, which I'm not even going to talk about how tight Joey Belladonna's pants are in that and how white his shoes are. They're sprayed on pants. Yeah, they're sprayed on pants. Pockets on. But uh, you know, Benante sporting a Day of the Dead shirt, which is kind of hip, and then. Uh, Jeff and I, because we're old school Tecmo Bowl fans, we're noticing in the uh, small picture, Dan Spitz is wearing a, a classic Joe Morris New York Giants uh, <laughs> uniform there. So that's that's pretty cool. But uh, moving on from what you just heard, uh, Indians, talk about what 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 was going on there oh, in terms geez, of the ode. That um, yeah, you listen to the first couple licks, and it's like, man, is this Iron Maiden or yeah, Run to the Hills yeah, kind of thing? And that was like one of the first, I think that was the first Anthrax video I saw on MTV or something, too. And I was like, I think I was listening to it and then turned and looked at the screen and saw Belladonna with his headdress on running around like an idiot. And I was like, man, are these guys serious? Or uh, what's, what, what's this about? Trying to pull Yeah. And and again, purely off of speculation, we're, we're hoping and crossing our fingers that, you know, in terms of sensitivity issues, which Anthrax didn't really care about that stuff. They didn't mind if they pissed some people off. But, yeah. you know... We think maybe Belladonna has some maybe Native American roots or something like that. Yeah, this is all of her painstaking research of uh, looking at pictures. Pictures. And, <laughs> and it, hey, and there's a there's a careful clue if you study the spray and the disease. That Joey Belladonna is holding a sign, uh, which I won't say what it says, but you know it, it makes a reference to. Yeah, we're still we're still at the cabin up north, so uh, we don't have any kind of internet access at all. So everything we're doing is just kind of seat of our pants three weeks we've been buried in snow yeah. up in this grim cabin in the mountains in norway has yeah it. so uh you'll be hearing some kind of black metal thing from us soon i'm sure we're probably gonna start a side project of, about the the hills of uncle john's cabin and the, the norwegian the hills yep. but uh you know indians just had a lot of dynamic you know cool elements to it from the war dance kind of breakdown um, which which really became like an essential element, like you know Scotty, kind of yelling atop uh, the vocals a lot and almost sort of dragging. Oh, it reminded me like it, the same way that like Jim Martin from Faith No More was like he was the heavy metal guy in the band. He, all he played was heavy metal riffs, and that seems like you know Ian just plays chunky hardcore riffs and does the hardcore like bellows and stuff. Yeah, and I, I think it was Scotty uh, Scotty or Bernate who got interested in, in you know not in, not only hardcore but he was the one who started to bring the hip hop elements in in the late 90s mm-hmm. when they did the yeah, crossover with Public yeah. Enemy and stuff and you even see some of that in the Persistence of Time too with some of the vocal patterns and stuff mm-hmm. yeah there's out. almost like some, some rapping things that mm-hmm. Belladonna's gonna do so and I'm, I'm sure that wasn't Belladonna you know bringing hip hop influences into his <laughs> vocal style never know never know but uh, we like this record so much that we're going to hear one more tune from it, and then we're going to get into, uh, we're going to actually skip State of Euphoria, but, um, you know, State of Euphoria doesn't get talked about a lot from from their records. It 
from their back catalog, I guess. It's it's kind of forgettable in some ways, not because there's bad songs, but because I don't think they were really advancing their songwriting beyond what they had achieved with Among the Living. Would they come Living. out the year later or something? Or? Like 88. So Among the Living's yeah. 86. So they kind of probably toured quite toured a extensively, bit. extensively, yeah. Uh, came back. They're probably tired, you know, f- from being on the road, and then they probably wanted to ape the success of what they had done with yeah, Among the Living. Keep going on the same same path. Yeah. And, and I don't, I just, you know... It didn't quite work out. We we were gonna play "Make Me Laugh," which has some some cool elements, almost like an injustice for all kind of you know feel mm-hmm. that, that was going on with some of the guitar chunks. There was almost some like odes to one on that tune. We were listening to it earlier and trying to decide what to what to keep and what not to. But, well, this uh, is just yeah, kind of our our common oh absolutely absolutely taste kind of going on this thing. So it's by no means a historical look at them. Although there was a great King Diamond scream at the end of that song. Yeah. So, uh, but the and the rec- cackle. What's that? And the cackle. Yeah, the cackle. Uh, we're gonna pick up with with Mark's kind of favorite record because it was the first one you really encountered, right? Basically, yeah. It was the first one I actually purchased. I, I, a lot of people like back in the time I attempted to skateboard, and a lot of people had uh, Anthrax tapes in their car, so you'd be like listening to them all the time. But I never actually bought one until Persistence and. That was the last tape I bought. <laughs> wow. The, oh, the last Anthrax tape. Oh, okay. I, was, I thought maybe this historical, like, that was the thing that made you buy CDs and stuff. No, I don't know. what I don't know. I think Death Spiritual Healing was the first CD I ever bought. Oh, wow. So. That's cool. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I think Soundgarden Super Unknown was mine. I think mine was Chaos AD, maybe. From, from, from Sepultura. Yeah. All good releases in their own kind yeah. of unique ways. Like, yeah, Spiritual Healing had the worst cover of the... Yeah, but. that's that's true. <laughs> Spiritual Healing almost had a... At least it wasn't Gene Wilder on the front. Yeah. You know, yeah. Billy Graham instead. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we're going to hear Among the Living and then a pair of songs from Persistence of Time, which we'll we'll talk more about that record when we come back. So hopefully you uh, enjoy the, the progression that you're going to hear here.
that was Bell, uh, Belly the Beast, Blood, and Among the Living. And uh, Blood and Belly the Beast are off of the, the record we mentioned right before that, Persistence of Time, which is the last uh, Joey Belladonna record. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, you had some some things that you kind of were noticing as an overall pattern on that record. Yeah, I mean, on, on the previous albums we were talking about, you know, the rhythm's very straightforward, breakdown's very straightforward. Seems like they were just throwing a few more things in than they had, you know, like they're progressing as a band a little bit, kind of getting more together with their sound. I and think getting away from that staccato thing too, and actually, yeah. like uh, Belly of the Beast is a really rhythmic and like melodic, catchy, melodic song. song. Yeah, yeah. And it almost is very predictive in a way of what they're going to do with Sound of White Noise mm-hmm. with John Bush. And in, in a way, some of the vocals that Belladonna is doing, he's toned down some of his high vocals. Yeah, the, kind of the Judas it's Priest more the kind of stuff. Kind of thing, yeah, yeah, and it's it's yeah, the more the kind of bark thrash vocals that you you know fit in uh, a little bit more. Yeah, I mean with those with persistence of time and sound of white noise, you can kind of see there's almost like a transition period there where those two two albums could fit together a little bit. Yeah, where yeah, this was also you know when all the Seattle bands were blown up. Yeah, and you can kind of you can see that in sound of or see it, you can hear it in sound of white noise a little bit where they're kind of like that while that sound was a little more accepted producers knew a little bit better like how to capture that and they seem to mix like that melody and like the the noise aspect really well on that record. Yeah, and persistence of time the the thing about that too is that they're they're writing longer songs that are they're, like yeah I mean the first two songs alone are seven minutes a piece you know time and and blood one of the songs you just heard there. And I really think that Injustice for All kind of like shook up the the thrash industry oh, yeah. a little bit in mm-hmm. terms of the pop, you know, the popularity of one the video. I mean, really broke through to a lot of people, and I think maybe it it kind of forced them to get become more serious songwriters. I mean, oh, I, I would totally agree. Yeah, a lot of the themes on that uh, that record, you know, there's no more like comic book really references. There's no more you know Stephen King references. You know, I mean, uh, I think I got the time, which is kind of their token, like goofy song on the on yeah, the, record, the Joe but. Jackson cover. Uh, but I mean, the song we're gonna play here in a moment in my world is is like their their Folsom Prison blues of thrash. You know, talking about you know kind of the depression of of sort of industrial, you know, the prison industrial system and you know blood. Um, I don't know if it's talking about. <laughs> necessarily like the, the lyric page is pretty intimidating like yeah saying it's like reading a small novel so so it's been a while since i've we, we come kind of, through those we kind of avoided it <laughs> to tell you the truth but uh the record overall holds up pretty well i'd say uh better than some of the other answers is it their stuff. black album i don't know i mean i i i don't know if it's their black album or if sound of white noise is their black album you know, it's it's really hard to say because Sound of White Noise is is pretty simplified. Well, seems, like the Black Album yeah, is, you know, pro, yeah, more yeah. and more produced. And Sound of White Noise almost seems like uh, the load, but like the proper version of what Load well, could have been. I was going to say it's yeah. the it, probably the best. Not thrash. that everything should be compared to Metallica. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you know, when the Black Album comes out, uh, it certainly is. You know, tells it. It really informs the more commercial thrash bands like Anthrax mm-hmm. that they're going to have to change their style. Oh, Megadeth did the same thing. Slayer's the only one that just kind of like, well, we're just going to keep doing what we do. <laughs> and I think out of those three, I think out of Megadeth, Anthrax, and, and Metallica, for my money, the, the best sort of post-thrash record is, is Sound of White Noise. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Euthanasia and 
has its moments. Not really. Uh, like two songs. I, One song, I maybe. Know, I, I meant to say, uh, um, what's the one right before it? Countdown to Extinction. Uh, That's rough, too, man. Uh, you know, Symphony Destruction had its moments. It's, you know. <laughs> the bass line was pretty cool, but uh, I don't know. When I heard that song, I was in seventh grade. Too. Hello, me, it's me again. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing better than a little sweating bullets. Oh, man. Yeah, okay. I, so, you know what? I'm going to stand by what I said. Sound of White Noise is the, the better of all those sort of post-thrash records, you know? And when Sound of White Noise came out, I totally panned it because of the whole Armored Saint connection. I, I saw a couple of their videos, and I, I was not impressed by any means. But now going back, and and I just I saw, like, the they had, like, four singles off that record on Headbangers Ball. So mm-hmm. I remember seeing all those. They're like, yeah, they're, they're kind of catchy. I wouldn't turn it off if they're on, but... It still didn't seem like persistence did yeah. to me. So, and and you know, this is a, a weird time—the time from persistence all the way to sound of white noise. I mean, because you know, you're coming off this this record, which we're going to hear one more cut from the "In My World" in a second. But you're coming off this record where all the songs were super long, super tight, super intricate. There was were actually a lot of solos and Clash of like the that. Titans tour too. This is probably around that era when the, the Clash of the Titans I tour so. kind of came off. Uh, but then, like Anthrax, I don't know when Belladonna left in the context of, of that era. But I don't even remember. I think the Belladonna solo record came out either before. That was in the mid. It was it was after Sound of White Noise. I'm pretty sure. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Because I remember. I think that. I got a service. I remember that awful cover of like a face like screaming or something. It was like green. I, I don't know. I have a, yeah. a distinct memory of kind of seeing it. But um, this was the time when Anthrax was. You know, they did I'm the Man. Oh yeah, uh, Attack of the Killer Bees came out where you know you're hearing SOD songs and Chromatic Death, which was the old theme to Headbangers Ball, starting up a posse, which is mm-hmm. an awesome swipe at the PMRC from Scotty, and and you know Scotty singing a lot more. Uh, clearly, they were moving really far away from the vocal style that Belladonna had kind of trademarked. Yeah, you know, yeah, getting really. into harsher. Kind of more straightforward, kind of more singing, like soulful singing. Yeah, you know, getting more serious lyrically mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> Although I'm the man, maybe not the most serious song. No, ever. No, no, no. Like Sound of White Noise, like you look at all the song titles on that. There's nothing that jumps out as being like a totally ridiculous title. That, no, you know that I could think of. And not at all. I looked through here and tried to find who actually wrote the lyrics, and it doesn't really specify. I, so. I'd say it's probably a mixture of guys. It's probably Charlie and Ian. Yeah. I don't know when when uh, maybe Bush the Bush come on during the writing of the album or was it after? I, I'd say he's a big part of it. He, you know, uh, I, I, I feel like I feel like there's a lot of his personality and a yeah. lot of hooks that that he, I think instinctively he probably put into that record. I wanted to bring it back another Metallica thing. Wasn't Bush slotted to uh, what was he going to? He was going to be the original on? vocalist. Well, like in '82 they asked him because yeah. I don't think they you know thought Hetfield could sing. Yeah. Uh, from what I, from what I remember, just kind of went you know funny. I don't I don't know if it was the right or wrong decision because I mean you know he ended up all right. Bush did, but yeah, you know, he missed out on a lot of cash. But at least he's not sitting in therapy sessions with yeah. Dave Mustaine now. You know, yeah. so who knows? <laughs> I don't know. And and you know what he he made like uh, the best kind of black album post black album you know better than Metallica could do. So yeah. kind of sweet yeah. justice in the end. But uh, yeah, let's let's get to some some stuff from Sound of White Noise and uh, a, a last kind of cut from 
Persistence of Time, which I, I kind of saved this song in particular because it, it's it's kind of a personal favorite of mine from the record, but also, like Belly of the Beast, very predictive of, of sort of the direction they're going to go, mm-hmm. kind of like the hook and the, the, the pre-chorus uh, in I'm in my world really could almost fit on sound of white noise yeah really good um and so it kind of fits in with all this so anyways we're gonna get into uh in my world room for one more and black lodge and we'll talk a little bit more about those songs when we come back
for one more and in my world uh from anthrax and if you have a you know particular favorite cut that maybe we didn't play you know shoot us an email over at the requiem podcast at gmail.com uh leave some comments some feedback 
you know anything if you got ideas or suggestions for future shows you know we're we're always up for it oh yeah and tell us like hey if this was like the worst selection of anthrax songs like you should have picked this this and this hey i'd love to you know hear about it because really there's not a whole lot of us that are that even we know that are even in the band or into the band anymore yeah it was kind of tough i really you know to be perfectly honest i haven't heard anything since stop 242 like i i don't think i've ever heard that record that record even a few a few all right cuts on that i like you know i think stop 242 the last bush record uh no No, there was more bush records after that but like yeah like the eight ball one whatever that's called Attack of the Killer 8. No, <laughs> could be. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, they even went back, and I haven't heard these, uh, but they went back and re-recorded like, a lot of the old Belladonna songs with Bush. Oh, really? Um, and then like a couple years ago, they went and toured with Belladonna. With again. Belladonna, because it's, you know, it's the it's the mid-2000s. It's the time of reunions, so I don't know. It happens. Uh, and the other thing we have to, you know, uh, Anthrax, unfortunately, was sort of responsible for around this, you know, early 90s era is accidentally creating new metal uh, when they teamed up with Public Enemy for, you know, uh, Bring the Noise. What I, year was that? That was the early 90s when they did that. So it was like kind of same time Faith and More was doing their thing too. And and then Rage Against the Machine put their first record out in 92, so it was, you know, who's who's taking the blame for uh, for Limp Biscuit? I don't know, you know. but I like this record company's fault for yeah, creating that yeah, atrocity. that's true, that's true. But uh, the the two tunes you just heard there from Sound of White Noise, uh, Room for One More was one of the, the singles. It's it's a, uh, a good kind of stock song from the record. It got some great vocal hooks. But Black Lodge was a, was a pretty interesting tune because they teamed up with a composer for that. It was uh, Angelo Badalamente, um, who had done, you know, does most of the scores for David Lynch, mm-hmm. including the, you know, famous Twin Peaks music and, and Mulholland Drive. And he actually and does the theme to Inside the Actor's Studio as well. Holy cow. That's <laughs> uh, fascinating. I did not know that. Um, but the video in particular was, was awesome. And uh, I think it was the same guy that did Pearl Jam's Jeremy and that won a ton of awards back mm-hmm. in the day. But this one was like, you know, just as dark, but it just as sort of weird. Do you remember that video at all? Was it the black and white video? No. Very little. It was the one where the guy, like, kidnaps the prostitute and, like, hooks her up to this mechanism because his wife, like, is sort of comatose. And he, like... That's... No, I don't he's like, seen he's that. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was almost like a um, Mr. Freeze type thing. Yeah. Was, like, kind of, but only a lot darker than that. A lot weirder. Because, like, he was, like, touching the prostitute and, the, like, the electrodes would go to, like, his wife so she could feel pleasure and stuff. And... The guy looked like a G.I. Joe villain in it. Like, he looked like Dr. Mindbender or something <laughs> yeah. weird like that. Uh, but it, it had a nice atmosphere. It may sound cheesy the way I'm describing it, but just fitting with, like, the mood of that song and the kind of dark, those tones that, that he was able to achieve on Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. you know, just uncomfortable and just uneasy. And, and stuff, yeah. Um, it really, you know, fit well. And I've heard some people, like, I played this song recently for a couple people who had no knowledge whatsoever of Anthrax, and their first thought was, like, this is like if Alice in Chains was a thrash metal band. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of heavy Alice in Chains-ish. I, you know, I don't know. I don't remember when that first record came out or what. first but... one was, like, 89, 90, and then but the one where they was broke. 92, 93. Yeah, yeah they came out around the same time yeah because i was in eighth grade i think or seventh or eighth grade i remember buying a cassette tape and 
listen to Angry Chair over and over again. But but certainly that the sort of grunge aesthetics and atmosphere had had kind of taken uh, a toll not on only not only on Anthrax but certainly on Metallica and mm-hmm. Megadeth and no, all the other bands. But it was a boom for Barbers. <laughs> the, that's that's true. And Charlie Benante jumped on board and luckily cut his hair. And, Whew. Too bad Spitz didn't. But yeah, poor Dan Spitz and the bangs. But you know, he's a he's a good continental shelf. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he was a good classic uh, thrash metal guitarist. You know, I mean, he was very competent and had some pretty, you know, just tasteful, tasteful guy. That's something we didn't really bring up too much was the the, the lead playing on on all these records is it's almost uh, I don't even know how to explain it. Really, it's, it's it doesn't even seem to gel with with the initial like the the, the music that's going on. The there's no like you know, a uh, theme they're coming back to with the, the leads. It's almost just like the typical noodling over the top of stuff. Sure. Until uh, Persistence and then Sound of White Noise, they actually start like incorporating it a little bit more. Yeah, and you had some observations kind of about their, their style of lead, didn't you? Like, just how it was thing. different than... Yeah, I mean, it, well, a lot of their leads and stuff used a lot of chromatic scales, you know, just going straight up and neck, straight down, not yeah. really going into major minor type scales. And I think musically... You know, I mean, it, it kind of, you know, played into that real, you know, straightforward rhythm style mm-hmm. as yeah. well. Yeah. And I think rhythmic or uh, musically, the the band was always more centered around the personalities, the dominant personalities of the band, which I you know believe were Ian pretty much Ian and, and Charlie, you know Benante, and so you had this very, I mean, in your face rhythm guitar all the time. You know, you guys mm-hmm. talked about it, sort of the the just the you know pile driver kind of riffing mm-hmm. of, of Scotty Ian because he, he couldn't do a lot of technical stuff he didn't really start doing any leads until persistence of time I think he did the lead on got the time you know yeah um, I mean I'm sure he did a few scattered little you know noodle leads and stuff like that but it was pretty much Dan Spitz doing all that and I think Charlie's drumming we should maybe mention because it's it's up there. I mean, no, it's, it's solid. It's, it's really solid. He, yeah. He's got to be one of the better thrash, you know, drummers. Um, certainly better than what you know, Testament and Metallica oh, and, and stuff were doing. <laughs> yeah, you Clemente. Yeah, he yeah. I mean, poor, drum tech. You know, I mean, I think Dave Dave Lombardo, you know, and Charlie were probably the the, the better. Really different players too. Charlie really uh, messes around a lot with like doing weird little things on the bass drums and using. Uh, uh, a lot of toms, a lot of toms, and not not cymbal work, not doing know. a ton of cymbal work, but yeah, it's all. It seems like it's all kind of right in the chordal area, like you yeah, know, hi hat shuffles and more like almost like a meticulous. Whereas like you look at like a Lombardo, where there's a little bit of a, almost a jazz, like yeah, he's a little bit more flair and things like over. that. Benante just pounds all the time, yeah. you know, and yeah. and, and almost. I feel bad because I, Frank Bellow is a great bass player, and I'm sure he's really you well. Know, he kind of shines along. a little bit more in persistence too, like. and, and sound of white noise. Yeah. yeah, he comes into his own. But it, you know, Benante can almost like keep all the bass rhythm because he's pounding. You well, know, it's bass weird, usually the, the time. you know the drummer and the bass player kind of play the similar thing, but now it's you know it's it's Ian and uh, and uh, Charlie kind of playing together. So what what the hell's the bass even too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like fill the gaps a little bit. But. So, you know, Anthrax, again, just a very different, unique sound for that thrash metal movement because, again, coming out of that New York hardcore sort of stuff and then certainly when we get to Sound of White Noise, they're now kind of, you know, adopting and, you know, being influenced by by the grunge stuff. But um, in our 
our final set of music we're going to play here, you're going to actually hear some of the, the, the cooler drums that Charlie plays on Sound of White Noise, which is Potter's Field, uh, kind of the opener of the, of the record, and kind of a cool opening, and kind of just really builds until like the chorus. And even the chorus is so like catchy and very commercial, but like Charlie is is kicking the crap out of the drums on it. It's awesome. Like, well, stuff just keeps building and building. Like everything thickened up on this record too. There's no there's no like there's not like a sparse moment unless they specifically lined it there, and everything just built up and thick. Yes, very. And uh, yeah, I don't know if that was uh, the production uh, was from Dave Jaredin, who had done like Jane's Addiction and, and some of that type of I stuff. I think part of it too, some of the tempos were on on Sound of White Noise weren't necessarily. They were a little bit slower. Not, not to say they were slower. No, I, more I know like, what you're saying. Like more medium paced, controlled. It's where they could just be very forceful with and be more melodic because they, you know, we well, you can kind of play around the beat a little bit. Too, yeah, just because when you're playing like that pile driver type stuff, it's hard to like fit melodies in there because you're just trying to keep up with the music. You yeah, know? yeah, really. Um, and and Belladonna struggled with that. I think in some ways because I think after a while it seemed like he was just like well I'm just going to do my own vocal line over the top whether I mean it was just like another instrument that was the lead of the song yeah Yeah. and and I feel like they're writing songs better for John Bush's vocal style Mm -hmm. because he you know is a stronger vocalist on this so but you know and I think what's cool about what you were saying about you know playing on that medium pace Jeff is that like when Charlie does jump forward and really like increase the tempo it stands out a lot more on this record Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's kind of cool so we're going to hear Potter's Field and then Only which uh, I'm sure everybody's heard it everybody's heard it over 25 yeah and uh, I I still love this song it's still maybe my favorite Anthrax song even though I've probably you know overplayed it so (laughs) much but in particular, Jeff and I kind of have fond memories because this is right in the era when when we started watching a lot of Headbangers Ball, mm-hmm. and I was kind of reminiscing with Jeff because you know I don't know if he would have remembered this, but I used to tape all the old Headbangers Balls and stuff like that, and you know Jeff didn't have cable, so he had to spend the night on Saturdays like back in middle school and high school, and we'd stay up late and watch it. But the very first episode I taped of Headbangers Ball, the number one song on the countdown to the ball was was only, uh, was only from Anthrax. So if that tells you the era that, that I was sort of getting into, you know, a lot of this extreme stuff or, or moving into the, the, the harder metal stuff, uh, that would be it. And then we're going to throw a little treat for, for you hardcore fans who are kind of holding out and hoping that you'd hear something uh, <laughs> a little bit older. We're gonna kind of end things with uh, with gung ho from spreading the disease, which you know doesn't fit chronologically, but who the hell cares? We don't, and uh, it's a good way to go out, kind of patriotic, and you know, bring you USA. Home. Yeah. So again, uh, for all you Olympics fans. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We watched some uh, some some gold medal victories today for for America, but uh, God, what a waste of time that was for me. Semper Fi, Semper Fi. Again, if you uh, have any comments, uh, we definitely missed an Anthrax song. Uh, shoot us an email at requiempodcast at gmail or check the website requiempodcast dot com, yeah. uh, which is going to be getting probably by the time you guys hear this, there'll be. Yeah, we're going to have all the old uh, magazines up there, PDF form, and we're going to have a blog going and all kinds of uh, facts and goodies. So Yeah, so we look forward to you guys. Uh, you know, Keep on listening to the Requiem Metal Podcast. we got uh, a more consistent schedule, I think, now. We, you know, Summer kind of got a little bit rough, but we're, we're hitting a, you know, three, three weeks straight here of uh, yep. consistent episodes. So 
Jeff, we really appreciate you kind of sitting in in the wee morning hours. So thanks for having me. Yeah, glad you could, glad you could be here. So for uh, for Requiem Metal Podcast, I'm Jason Hundy, and from Uncle John's Cabin, this is Mark Rudolph. Enjoy our last trio of Anthrax here. Okay.